Thank you for listening. Visit www.cityhillglobal.com to find out more about City Hill Church. Please turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians 7. We are ending our chapter 7 this morning. 1 Corinthians 7, that's where we are. I'm going to be reading from verse 17. If you haven't got your Bible, please do know that um, the words will be on the screen. And today we are going to be dealing with priorities. What are your priorities? Here's my argument this morning, and this is how it goes. Paul seems to be talking here about all kinds of things, and he's talking, he's trying to address the church where some of them are very pagan in their thinking. It looks as though the gospel has not done a work in their hearts because they say we are free, we can do whatever we like because the freedom of Christ means I can just choose to do whatever I like. And some of them have gone into some kind of unusual spirituality as we've looked at last week. And Paul is saying, The only way you're going to understand the gospel is if you set your priorities right and you know who comes first, and that is God first, and everything else falls into place. And we're going to be looking at that this morning and what that really means. And we're going to be starting from verse 17 of chapter 7, and we'll go all the way to verse 40. It's a bit of a lengthy passage, so please bear with me. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was any one at a time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his, circum- of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free... When called, is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let there let him remain with God. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? That's an interesting way of putting it. Are you bound to your wife? I'm not going to ask you men, are you bound to your wife? Paul has already done that. Do not seek to be free. That's an encouragement. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. We'll talk about it, don't worry. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. How's that encouraging? And I will spare you that. (laughs) I will spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. Remember, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Are you encouraged by that? (laughs) And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about the worldly things, how to please his wife. And and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her her husband. I say this for your own benefit not to lay any restraints upon you, 
but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and he has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Where do you start in a passage like that? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the truth of the gospel, how the gospel can really speak to us, challenge us, challenge our thinking, challenge the way we see the world, challenge the way we see one another, challenge the way we see you. And I pray today, Lord, that our hearts will be so wide open, chains will be broken, freedom, Lord, to worship you, but also freedom to receive your word and freedom, Lord, to do your word. Father, would you equip us as a church today that as the word of God is preached, that, Lord, you begin to do a great work in our hearts. Lord, we make our hearts available to you. And we say, Lord, come and speak to me. Why don't you ask God where you are now? Say, Lord, come and speak to me. Come and speak to me. Come and speak to my heart. Lord, I pray that any barrier will be broken. You set me free and you help me to understand the truth. Give me the bigger picture. Help me to understand what it is you are saying. And that's how I grow and mature in you. I commit everything today that we are going to talk about. I commit it to you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Let me just suggest just a few things just before we start. Remember, we talked three weeks ago, I think it was, that the church in Corinth were almost very worldly to a degree. And I'll remind you, we said that this church were worldly in the sense that sometimes they will choose to do things of this world, like a man will have sexual relationship with his father's wife, and the church will say, oh, that's amazing, that's good, that's okay. And Paul is confronting that. He said, you've been so worldly. And sexual immorality was taking place in the church. And the church, were, they were not doing anything. And Paul says, you are acting like the world. But last week, this week that's just gone, we dealt with also a group in the church who were saying, for you to be holy, for me to be holy, there are a few things I need to do. The first thing is, I need to let go of my wife if I'm, if I'm married. For those who are already married, I let go of my wife. I don't have to look into the area of marriage. Or if I'm married and I don't want to let go of my wife or my husband, sexual relations in that marriage is not something that is pleasing to God, is not holy. And Paul is confronting that. He's speaking against that. He said, that's not the holiness that comes from God. But today... We're going to see Paul laying a platform for everything that he's been talking about so far. Because the Corinthians, in their thinking, this is what they think. They think, the end has come. Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. We are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. What's wrong with that? Nothing. But they go further to say, or to suggest, or to think, because Jesus has died, we are a new creation. Because Jesus has overcome, it means that the fullness of the kingdom of God has come right now. Which is what I will call a realized view. Which means, if the fullness of the kingdom has come right now, I don't have to get married. If the fullness of the kingdom has come right now, there should be in the new kingdom no sexual relations. If the kingdom has come right now, it means there should be no marriage. And Paul is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You do not understand the gospel. The gospel does not say 
Because the kingdom has come now, the kingdom has come fully now. The kingdom has come, but the fullness of the kingdom has not yet come. And that's why Paul says, understand a few things. CTL, Jesus has died on the cross. God is sovereign. Why? Because God was able to do something that no man can do, that is to use the cross a sign of punishment as a place of victory. God was able to turn something that's so horrible into some of the, one of the most beautiful things the world could ever adore. God is sovereign. He can do whatever he pleases. But not only that, Christ has won the victory. As you sit here today, you sit as a people who are victorious in Christ because Christ Jesus, when he went on the cross, he defeated the powers that were otherwise going to defeat you. And that is Satan, sin, and death. He overcame Satan on the cross. He overcame sin on the cross, but he rose from the dead on the third day, which means death could not hold him down. In the first century, in the same way as it is right now, one of the biggest and greatest fears that we have is death. We are so fearful of death. And let me give you the good news. If you are a believer in Jesus, Jesus has defeated death, which was the greatest enemy ever, which means you have no reason to fear death because God has the power over death. That's why Jesus is victorious right now. And not only that, Jesus has made you not just a conqueror, but more than a conqueror in him. What do I mean by that? A conqueror is some, someone who is able to conquer something. But more than a conqueror means you can conquer something and use that thing that you have conquered to serve you. So that means if I've conquered a nation, I can conquer a nation, destroy a nation, but there's another way of more than conquering a nation. And that is I go there, I conquer the nation, I defeat them, and I ask them, I call them to come and serve me. So everything that was against us, God has conquered it and is now serving us and under our own authority, which means God has done something bigger than we could ever imagine. Now, we live in the world, however, where when you open your window, it doesn't look like Jesus has conquered. Why? Because you see wars, you see, you read the news, there's all kinds of things that are happening, breakdowns and brokenness and and the Corinthians can't say that the fullness of, kin of the kingdom has come. Because if the fullness of the kingdom has come, there should not be any of this that are happening around the world. But Paul is saying, prepare yourself right now. Do not be naive and live as though the fullness has come. Live as those who have conquered the grave through Jesus Christ, but live as those who are equipped to defeat every challenge and any challenge that comes across us right now. Which means, do not have an over-realized view of the kingdom of God. Have a realized view of the kingdom of God, which means the kingdom of God has come now, but the kingdom of God has not yet fully come now. Does that make sense? Great. But now, Paul in this passage He's having to address quite a big thing, uh, some big things. Why? Because the Corinthians, remember I said last week, the Corinthians have asked him lots of questions. And one of the questions they've asked, should I divorce my wife because I'm a believer? Should, I now, should my wife and I not get together anymore now that we are believers? And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. But now he changes gear and he lays an incredible platform where he begins to challenge certain things in their lives. And I will go as far as saying that if you look at this passage just by what Paul is literally saying about whether or not you should marry or you should not marry, you lose the bigger picture. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to zoom in into the aspects of this passage that I believe will help us to understand all that Paul is saying here. And I'm going to be looking at three things in this passage. The first one is Paul is talking about the gospel being such the urgency of the gospel, which means the gospel is not something for tomorrow. The gospel is something for now. The gospel changes your life right now. 
The second thing that Paul is saying here, he's saying we need to engage the world. If the gospel is the good news for now, we need to engage the world with the gospel. But then he says, the only way you can see that the gospel, the urgency of the gospel, that the gospel is a message for now, and the only way that you can engage the world now is if you set your priorities right. If your priorities are not set right, you will not understand the urgency of the gospel. You'll just carry on with life almost as though nothing has happened. But understand that Jesus Christ has, has died and he's been raised from the dead, which means it's the good news now. And secondly, that good news is not just for you, it's for the world. Engage the world that you are in. And thirdly, you cannot understand the engagement of the world and the urgency of the gospel unless you understand the priorities in your life which are important. Let's start. The urgency of the gospel. You see, Paul says here, he says, this world is passing away. He says, come right now, embrace the truth of the gospel. Do not mess about with things in this world or things of this world. Understand that God is doing something right now. Is the gospel urgent? Is it something, is it a message that is urgent to us? Let me highlight a few things. And the best way to do this is by highlighting a few groups in the church. Let me just suggest here that there are at least three types of people in this church. Three groups. The first group are those who believe I'm saved by grace, Jesus loves me, but really the gospel is good news, but it is good news for me. Why should I tell people out there that the gospel is good news? The best thing I need to do right now is live a pure life and clean myself on the inside, on the outside, and also just read my Bible every day, pray every day, and just love God. Go to church every day. Isn't that what the gospel is about? If I just pray, if I just live a holy life, if I just read my Bible, if I just go to church, that's what the gospel is about. Why should we care about the world out there? We shouldn't talk to people about Jesus. Who are we to try and tell people that Jesus is the Lord and Savior? Let me suggest that that group is bigger than we realize. And by the way, it's not, you don't necessarily verbally say that. It's just how we live our lives. The way we think is that the gospel is for me. It's a good news, but it's good news just for me. It's not for anyone else. It's for me. It makes, Jesus makes me happy. He changed my life, and now I'm a great man, or I'm a great woman. I can live a holy life and embrace the message of the gospel. I go to church, I have my Bible, and I have everything. But I should not tell anyone else that Jesus is alive. The second group are those who believe, hey, let's go out there and tell everyone that Jesus is alive. Let's go out there and tell people about the gospel. Let's go and tell these people that Jesus is alive, that he's king and he's Lord and he's savior. But if you go to them and say, why? They cannot give you a reason. Do you know why? Because the first group are living a life of fear that one day Jesus might come today and if my life is not sorted today, I'm in trouble. So that means all Jesus is about is about cleaning my heart and making me whole. Because what if he comes today and finding me messing about? Fear. The second one is guilt. If I don't do this, what is God going to think of me? I gotta do this now. I gotta do this because if I don't do this, Jesus is not gonna be pleased with me. Guilt and fear is not the best way of proclaiming the gospel. Because the because when we proclaim the gospel with guilt, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to go and not proclaim the gospel of compassion. I'm going to proclaim a gospel that's very legalistic. But there's a third way. And the third way is those who proclaim the gospel because they're convinced of a few things. Because they fully understand why we got to proclaim the gospel. Group one, and group two form at least about 80% of the church. But group three is a very small number. That's why 
one of the theologians called John Stott once said, if, how many Indians are in the church? This is coming to you. <laughs> John Stott once said, if there were Indians in India, sorry, if there were Christians in India, of course there are Indians in India, if there were Christians in India, all right, if, if India had Christians, the whole of India would be Christian. That's what John Stott is saying. Do you know why he's saying that? He's not literally saying that, oh, seriously, literally, every person in India would be a Christian. If he's saying, if people in India, and by the way, you can apply this to every country, if people in India were not withdrawing and just living a spiritual world, in their spiritual world, in a cocoon of their own, just thinking about themselves and their own private faith, if people in India were not just condemning the people out there and the culture and just saying they are horrible, they are evil, but if people in India understood why Christ saved them, then they would understand the purpose of evangelism. And if they understand the purpose of evangelism, then they will go out there and tell people that Jesus is alive. That's what he was saying. And let me tell you that the third group of people understand a few things. The first thing they understand is that God saved me and made me his child. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm loved by Jesus Christ. But God did not just save me, but God called me and he entrusted the greatest task the work that he's ever entrusted anyone, he entrusted that to me. To go and proclaim that the gospel is good news, that Jesus is risen, that the, the message of the gospel is for the world. But how many people believe that they are ambassadors of the gospel? If 80% of the church understood what it means to be the ambassadors of the gospel, then more people will be coming into the church of the kingdom of God on a daily basis. But the third group, this is what they understand. They understand love. They understand the great commission. They understand compassion, which is compassion from God. And they understand what it means that the gospel is good news. The first thing, love. Someone in the prayer meeting mentioned the great commandment and said, we have been given the greatest commandment that the world could ever see, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. We know that very well. But what does that mean? It means if we truly love God, we will truly love what he says. And if we truly love what he says, one of the things that he says is love others. And if he says love others, he's talking about your neighbor. And if he says love your neighbor, he's not just referring to those who are believers. He's referring to those who are not believers as well. Truly, if I truly understand what love is, then I will understand that the gospel is a message for all people. And I will want to tell the people out there that Jesus is who he truly says he is. The second thing is the great commission. I want, with the great commandment, everyone was reciting it. I want to see, it says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. What, what God is saying there is that the mission of God it's urgent. It's go now. He doesn't say go tomorrow. Go when you think it's a good idea. Go when there's spare time in your busy schedule. He's saying go. And if we truly embrace the Great Commission, then we'll understand that the gospel is urgent. It's a message that's for now. Thirdly, compassion. People every day, every day, 
maybe let me say, every hour, there are people who die without knowing the message of Jesus Christ. Every hour, within this hour, someone is going to drop down and die who doesn't know that Jesus is the Lord of the world. The question is, if Jesus, when he saw people, he had compassion over them like a sheep without a shepherd, he had compassion, he felt that they needed to be reached. If he had that, and we truly embraced Jesus Christ, would we not have compassion? Lastly, the good news. Who supports France, who supported France over the World Cup here? Who are the Croatians? You are making my examples really bad. Because I'm trying to think about it. I'm thinking there'll be more people who support France and then it'll make sense and all the rest of it. But it just doesn't work. But let me tell you this. Winning the World Cup is really good news for every country. Imagine your nation wins the World Cup and you watch a match, it's in the middle of the night and they win the World Cup. What are you going to do? Scream, shout, why? Because it's good news. And you probably are going to wake people up in the middle of the night and tell them that something has happened that is going to change the following day, isn't it? For those who are football, you know, passionate about football, or let's say India, get the chance to win um, World Cup cricket. No, I wasn't talking about football. <laughs> Ethan, let's say India gets the opportunity to win against South Africa in a cricket, something that will take a while to happen. Um, um, you're going to stone me. <laughs> okay, I'm making an example here. Okay, imagine that happens. It's going to be a new day. It's going to define how the following day is going to look like. Things are going to change completely. Imagine in the Philippines, you decide to go for a basketball World Cup and you beat the, the USA. So, I'm, here's an example. Ben, can you stand? Okay, that's Ben. He's probably five foot, five foot four. Erin, can you stand? This is the USA. Look at that. <laughs> Okay, that's, that's basketball, by the way. <laughs> you sit down. But imagine the Philippines, who are so passionate about basketball, but all of a sudden they win the World Cup. Goodness me. You will, start, you will get to know how many Filipinos are in the UAE, wouldn't you? I think 800,000 people will be erupting in the streets and celebrating and welcoming. You know why? Because it's good news. The question then is, if the gospel is such good news, why is there no passion for the gospel? The gospel is good news. And if it's good news, you'll wake someone up in the middle of the night because it's urgent. They can't hear it through the grapevine. And they can't hear it tomorrow. It has to happen now. That's why Paul says the time is short. Proclaim the gospel now. And if it's good news, it's for now. The urgency of the gospel. The gospel is for now. Secondly, engage the culture. Why am I saying this? Because Paul says... The way he puts it makes it very hard for you. And if you go back and read this without this message today, you might find it difficult. This is what he says. He says, if you have been circumcised, do not seek to not be circumcised. If you have been circumcised, uh, if you were not circumcised, don't try to get circumcised. Basically what he's trying to do here is uh, he's referring to Jews and Gentiles. He's saying, Jews, do not try to, not to be someone else you are not. Gentiles, do not try to be Jews. Stay and remain as you are. 
And he's talking about slaves as well. He says, if you're a slave, of course I would love you to be free, but if you, as a slave, are in a household of unbelievers or people who don't understand the gospel, stay where you are. Because who knows that through you, you might change people's hearts. And then he talks about husbands and wives. He says, stay where you are. Don't say, he's not a believer, and we got married, and then I became a believer. He's not a believer. I'm going to go. He's saying, no, 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 stay where you are, because your household could be transformed by the gospel. He says, if you got a job, and you suddenly become a believer or a Christian, don't say, oh, I don't like this job, because it makes me unholy. I'm going to leave now. Stay where you are, because you bring the light of the glory of Christ in that job. Stay where you are, and make an impact where God has placed you. Cultural engagement means the gospel is not just for us in our homes. The gospel belongs everywhere. Let me tell you, again, there are a few groups in this. The first group is, is those who are liberals. This is a, not a, don't think about political issues here. The liberals are saying, I'm a sinner saved by grace. God loves me so much, and he changed me, and he transformed my life. I'm so grateful. And I'm loving my job, or I'm loving my neighbors, and I'm loving everyone. But I don't believe that Christians, is Christians' job to try and change the culture. Christians should not try and change the culture. We should just go and love everyone. The liberals are saying, there's nothing wrong in the world. All we just got to do is go and do, I need to just go and do my job. I need to just continue with my job and just do it and just be obedient and just do it. Who am I to try and tell everyone that they need a savior called Jesus? That's liberal Christianity. The second group are those, as I just put withdrawal, are those who withdraw. Basically what they, the, the people who withdraw are saying, we love the gospel. We love Jesus. He's our Lord and Savior. He died on a cross. But actually, we sh the world is corrupt. The world is evil. The world is really bad. Stay out of it. Stay away from the world. Never, ever engage. Don't go for coffee with a non-Christian. Why? Because they will defile you. That's a, that's a withdrawal mentality. Don't talk to anyone who's not a believer. Don't engage them. During your lunch break in your company, look for Christians, Nat. If there aren't any, go across the roads. That's the withdrawal mentality. Don't talk to them because they're not believers. You'll be defiled. Have you heard their speech? What comes out of their mouth? That's not the gospel. The liberal gospel, that's not the gospel. Withdrawal gospel, that's not the gospel. The third group I'll call them the fundamentalists. And let me tell you why. The fundamentalists are those who would believe. They say, listen, we believe the whole world belongs to Jesus, which means our president has to be a Christian, which means all the signboard. If you go outside, a signpost has to have Paul Street and Peter Street and James Street and this everything. I was thinking of using car, you know, car stickers as an analogy, but I just realized when I bought a car, my car, I bought it from a Christian, and he has a fish sticker on it. So I'll be a hypocrite if I use that. But you know what I mean. That everything has to be painted Christian. Only then would we know that we've engaged the culture. And let me tell you this. I'm not so sure that's how you engage the culture. I'm going to bring the third one, the fourth one, which I believe is the best way of engaging the culture. That is gospel transformation. Impacting the world with the gospel. And you can impact it in this way. Firstly, recognize that there's common grace in the world. What do I mean by that? I mean God has put grace, his grace 
in different areas of life and work and domains and cultures and sectors and areas. God has put an incredible grace upon people here from India. God's grace is upon people here from the U.S. God's grace is upon people here from China. God's grace is upon people here from the Philippines. God's grace is upon people here from Africa, from Singapore, from different parts of the world. And Kerala. <laughs> Let me tell you why I say this. I'll make examples and you'll say, now we see. There seems to be a party happening here. I'm kidding. Let me tell you why. I come from South Africa. Any South Africans here? Oh, one, two, three. That's just a few. But anyway, hear this story. Three days ago, or two days ago, was Mandela Day. Did you hear about that? International Day to celebrate Nelson Mandela, a great hero for many people, of many people here. When Nelson Mandela was released from prison and he came to a, a country that was separated, broken to the core, and instead of speaking a message of revenge and retaliation, he spoke a message of reconciliation and love and unity. Many people said, yeah, that's all well and good, but he hasn't mentioned Christ. Let me tell you this. I do believe God was at work behind the scene. Why? Because God is able to do things that are beyond our comprehension. We said earlier that God is sovereign. That means he can use a leader who does not believe in God at all to drive God's agenda so that God's purpose is fulfilled. And if we don't see that in our workplace, if we don't see that in our culture, if we don't see that in our, our background, in our family, people around us, we are in trouble. Let me say this. Recognize common grace as a place where you start if you want to pro proclaim the gospel. Another example. Martin Luther, one of the great fathers of the Reformation, in 1517, one of the things that he used to say was this. He said, if you now pray what we call the Lord's Prayer, and you ask God for provision, and you say, give us today our daily bread, he said, do you know what God does behind the scene? He provides for a farmer. A farmer will farm and grow wheat and take it and take it to the bread maker or the, 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 what do you call it, the baker. And the baker will make bread and God will provide for the baker, the baker to make bread. And the baker, God will provide for the, 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 the guy who transports bread from the bakery to the shop. God will also provide somehow to the shopkeeper somehow for his business to be maintained and to go well. And then you, God will provide the pennies that you need to go and get bread, and then you have bread on the table, and you say, thank you, Jesus, that you provided for me. Do you see how God works? He works behind the scene, and he works even in situations where we don't think God is there. You think, that's not biblical, Fusi. Surely I haven't seen that in the Bible. Let's go to the Bible. Do you remember the people of God found themselves in, under, under Pharaoh in Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt. Why? Because they were taken to, into slavery. What did they do? They prayed to God to set them free from slavery. What did God do? He sent Moses. Who is Moses? A man of God. And, Mo and God was able to rescue the people into the promised land. And they became rebellious again. And they went to Babylon this time. They became slaves in Babylon. Who did God send? God sent Cyrus. Who is Cyrus? A king of Persia. Who is a king of Persia? A pagan king to rescue his people and set them free 
from where they were, which means God seems to work behind the scene. And if we are disengaging from our culture, we will never recognize that God somehow is making Emirates do really well so that it can employ people to come here and be based here so that they can proclaim the gospel. We never recognize that. And if we lose sight of that, everything we're going to say, devil, 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 evil is bad, is bad, is bad. That way we won't engage the people. Secondly, we need wisdom and insight and courage when we engage the culture. What do I mean by that? Where you work, there's bound to be injustice in your, as you engage people. Where you are working right now, there's bound to be a form of injustice. The question is, how do you deal with it? How do you deal with injustice? You need wisdom and you need courage. What do I mean by that? Courage to speak in a way that will bring freedom into circumstances. I make an example. Has any one of you read the letter to Philemon? Who has read Philemon here? It's a very small letter. If you haven't read it, read it now, after this meeting. This letter goes like this. Paul is writing to a man who is a businessman, who is a very wealthy man, and his name is Philemon. And Philemon has a slave, and his slave is Onesimus. And Onesimus has run away. He's a runaway slave, and he goes to Paul, and he tells him that he's been mistreated by Philemon. And Paul writes a letter to, back to Philemon about this man. In that letter, Paul is very courageous, but also this incredible insight and wisdom that Philemon will read the letter and have nothing else to do but to set the slave free and to treat the slave like a brother. Paul says to Philemon, you know how I preach the gospel to you? Philemon will say yes, which means you owe me your life. Philemon will say yes. And then he says, I have a man with me here. His name is Onesimus. You know he's your slave. Philemon will say yes. And he says, this slave has not just become, it's not just a slave, it's my son. I see him as my son. And when he comes back to you, because he's my son and you owe me your life, treat him like you'll treat me. Does that make sense? Which means when Philemon goes back, what is he going to face? Because if, Oni, if, if when Onismas goes back, because if, Paul, if as Philemon tries to punish him, what is he doing? He's punishing Paul. And he can't do that because he owes Paul his life. You see that? We need courage. We speak into situations at work in our context, but we also need wisdom. God has placed you where you are to apply incredible wisdom for the gospel. Ask God for wisdom. Ask God to give you incredible wisdom. The other one is where you embody Christ at work. What do I mean embody Christ at work? Let me ask you here. What happens if someone has been mistreated as your subordinate? Someone once mentioned something and said, I was working and I'm the line manager of a company. And one of my subordinates made a huge mistake and made a big fault. And the, the, the general manager picked up on it and was about to fire my, uh, my subordinate. And I went to my line manager and I said, I'm so sorry for what happened. I, I should have trained that person better. It's my fault. Charge it on me. And the, line manager, the, the general manager said, what? Seriously, he did it. Said, no, 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 it was my fault. I, I didn't train him to do that. I should have trained him better to do that. And the guy who was vindicated after that because he was not fired after all came to this line manager and said, I could have been fired there, but you stood in, the, in my place. You stood in the gap. Why did you do that? The person said, I serve Jesus and he substituted in my place where I was supposed to be on the cross, he came and took my place and I'm now standing on your behalf and taking your place. A sacrifice for others that speaks of Jesus Christ is how you engage the world. How do you engage your work? How do you approach your work? Lastly, 
gospel priorities. And this one, by the way, let me just do a whistle-stop tour. Paul is saying here, for those who are married, he says, leave as though you're not married. For those, for those who, are, who are not married, serve the Lord. You know, he, he's saying these things. But basically what he's saying is this. He's saying, what are your priorities like? Let me ask you, what are your priorities? A set of priorities now. Who's first in your line of priorities? Let me suggest this. If your priorities are God first, God first, everything else falls into place. Let me tell you why. Because a lot of us, we will say, I love Jesus, but the priority in my life is me. If people hurt me, if things happen about me, everything revolves around me. And God is the one who helps me to become a better me, which means God is a means to an end and not your ultimate, which means God exists for you to make you who you want to be. If your priorities are like that, you're going to hurt yourself and you're going to experience a breakdown. Secondly, oh, my family is everything. I love, look at my kids, they're so cute. Look at my husband, isn't he handsome? Look at this, my family, I love my family. You can take anything and everything else, but just live with my family. They are everything to me. It only has to happen that something goes wrong. Just one thing, and he upsets you, and he upsets everything, and you say, I don't believe in God anymore. Why? Because look at what happened in my family. Why? Because God was a means to please your family, to make your family happy. God was not the ultimate thing. Let me suggest your priorities. God first. Let us put God first. And secondly, if you ask in the order, if you are married, marriage second. If you are not married, family second. And if you are married, family third. If you are not married, family second. And then the list goes. The church, which means where you are called, where God has placed you to serve and to function, and then your work. Let me just go briefly in closing to this marriage and family. I'm speaking to many different cultures here. And for some of you, you get married and your wife has to come into the family. The danger is to start thinking that because she's part of the family, that is almost like there's no distinction between my wife and the rest of the family. That's why there needs to be that distinction there. And we cannot worship family. We need to worship God. Some of you, I have spoken to many people who have made decisions in their lives that were contrary to the purposes of God. And the first thing they tell me is that because my family says so. The second is that people have made some huge decisions that are so against the will of God, and they know it. And then when you ask the question, why have you made this, 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 this decision? They say, yeah, in my culture, we have to do things this way. Let me say this. If God is not first all other things will want to take the first place. And if God is first, all your priorities go in order. And if your priorities are in order, you'll understand that your job, where God has placed you right now, if God is first, you are called into that place to bring the glory of God. So that means the job does not exist anymore for you, it exists for the glory of God. If, if, if God is first, it means salvation is no longer just a personal thing. Salvation belongs to the Lord and not to you. It means I put anywhere where I am for the glory of God and to make Jesus known. The question I'll leave you is this. Would you put Jesus first in your life or other things? And if you do put other things, they will crush you and they will always crush you. Let us put God first. Let him be our priority in everything. Let's all stand. I just want to pray for us.
Just where you are, just close your eyes. I believe God wants to minister to you. Some of you, you said, I've already made my priorities. It's so hard to undo what I've done. It's so hard to put anything first other than the things that I love right now. Some of you, your job is your God. And God wants to set you free. And by the way, God has put you in your job. Some of you, you are your own God. You will hurt yourself. Some of you, people around you, family, friends, are your God. Let's get our priorities right. Because there's a world that's waiting for Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for every married couple here. Lord, as Paul says here, love your wife, love your husband. Give yourself. I pray for those who are single here. I thank you for them. Lord, may singleness be used to the glory of Christ. I pray for those who have children here. May children be a blessing in the body, a blessing to every family here. I pray for those, Lord, who have incredible jobs here. May every job, Lord, that has been assigned to us bring glory to the name of Jesus. Father, where our priorities are not in line, I pray may you set everything in line right now in Jesus' name. May we go home, Lord, and ask my, may I ask my wife, are my priorities in line? May a wife ask the husband and say, do you think we've got our priorities right? I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would transform us from the inside out. Lord, there's a world out there that needs the gospel. Fill us up and send us out. Strengthen us. Equip us. May we be a church that is here to impact our community. Lord, may we see common grace in this world and may we go in and bring such a huge impact. And Lord, may it be all to you and to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Visit www.cityhillglobal.com to find out more about City Hill Church. Thank you.